listeners may find the following content disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, y'all yuns and yuns, welcome to the Appalachian Crime Show podcast. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Nikki, with a memory problem, apparently. <laughs> Having a bad day. Ooh, boy. <laughs> it's great. Oh, I'm giving a shout out to my mother, who just called uh, me before we recorded. Mom! And I, yeah, hi, Mom. <laughs> and I said, Mom, I'm recording in a minute, or I'm at Nikki's, and, and she's like, well, I need help figuring out how to make red beans and rice in the Instapot. And I was like, all right. So I try to help her, and Nikki could hear everything because <laughs> I, if anyone of you who's listening knows my mother, you know how loud she is on the phone. She just is, I don't know why, like, it's almost like she's yelling, and she'll do this in Walmart. She'll be on the phone, and she's, like, like yelling. I love you, Mom. She then was not getting the lid on right, so then you just heard, like, banging in the <laughs> background. Boom, 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 I was boom. like, stop putting the lid on the Instapot. Just stop. <laughs> so I'm uh, hoping that I don't get a uh, text from her saying the pressure cooker has exploded. Oh gosh, I'm so worried about that. I was worried about that the first time I used one. But So today in the world of true crime, we wanted to talk about um, something that has been in the media this past week. And it is about uh, Rodney Reed. So if you have not seen this in the media, Rodney Reed was set to be executed this past week. And they put a stay on his execution. Yes. So he is not being executed. Correct. I didn't really know anything about him uh, no. when I saw this. And I was like, oh, okay. Why are we, you know, if someone's on death row, why are we trying to make sure that he's not good? I, yeah. Neither here nor there about capital punishment and whether or not I agree with it. But I wanted to provide some information about Rodney Reed and the case. That way you're up to date on that's your true crime news article of the week. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. <laughs> I read a couple articles, but this is actually from the free Rodney Reed web- website. I also didn't realize that he, some of the people who helped him is the Innocence Project. Uh-huh. Like, we're helping work with him, which yeah. I think is really cool. We've mentioned the Innocence Project, like, in other cases that we've talked about on the podcast. So in 1996, Stacy Stites was killed, and this takes place in... Texas, right? And about a year later, they arrested Rodney Reed, and he was 29 years old. Um, he is a black man, and he was charged with capital murder. But really, the only evidence they had so Stacy and Rodney were in a consensual relationship, but from what I understand, Stacy was cheating on her current partner. And the only DNA evidence they had was a little bit of semen from the last time that they potentially had had sex that was the Mm -hmm. only thing they had linking him to that but people in her and his family were aware that they were having this relationship so they were Mm -hmm. able to vouch that that was a thing but i mean at the same time you know people in relationships kill their partners so yeah that's not a reason to not assume that he might be guilty he was totally like i am innocent i did not do this from day one and it's funny because this case my other case also has to deal with the fact of like all white juries against people of color he (coughs) was convicted by an all-white jury and sentenced to die by lethal injection and he was scheduled to die on november 20th So he would have been scheduled to die uh, this week, this past week. They were able to submit a bunch of things and they finally agreed to not execute him Mm -hmm. for this crime. But what's interesting is the original suspect in this case was Jimmy Fennell, who is, or was, Stite's fiance. Mm -hmm. 
And he not only was a police officer, uh, he also had a history of violence against women. And actually, right after Stacy was murdered, he kidnapped a woman and sexually assaulted her while he was on duty as a police officer. And then, Ugh. yeah, so he spent <laughs> 10 years in prison for this. <clears throat> so I'm assuming at this point he would be out then. And apparently there are like records of people, you know, swearing that Jimmy threatened to kill Stacy before and that he, at her funeral had said that she deserved what she got things like that no one seemed to care about that um there's not not. really any physical evidence that links rodney to the crime of killing stacy but you gotta know how our justice system works in the Mm. u.s and it's not always it's not a just system all the time it's not a just system that's a good way to say it. But yeah, that's what's been happening in true crime this week. So there will likely be updates. And there's a website called Free Rodney Reed. And as of right now, they have a petition that has been signed by 2,973,000 people over that number. And their goal is to get 3 million. Since they were able to get the Texas Court of Criminal Appeal- Appeals to put a stay on his execution, I guess, I don't know if the petition is as important now but he's still in for this i'd say it would be so that they can go back to court because he's only got 120 days is what the stay is that's what i was reading right before we started recording today he's only got 120 day stay so they've got to come up with some really good hard evidence that he that would overturn his conviction conviction in that time period or at least grant him a new trial. According to the website, so there's evidence that was ignored and there were mm-hmm. like forensic pathologists that said there's no way that he could have done it because mm-hmm. like scientifically and everything it was impossible for it to have been him. But they don't seem to care about that. Also, multiple people have come forward saying that her fiance admitted that he did it. Yeah, um, one of the things I saw was when he was in prison, mm-hmm. the fiance, whatever, what was his name? Jimmy, right? Mm-hmm. When he was in prison, he actually spilled to a member of the Aryan Brotherhood in prison. I saw that, yeah. That he was talking about something and he said, yeah, my or my girlfriend got what she deserved for loving a N-word. And I was just like, okay, well, that's not obvious that you did this or anything, asshole. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean... That's just, just to think that an innocent, I mean, because honestly, I think he's innocent. I think Ronnie is absolutely innocent. And just to think that he's been sitting in a prison cell all this time and coming up to potentially a death sentence, because that's what was going to happen this week. Just God. In a case like that, where I'm sorry, it's pretty evident that Rodney did not do it. It's like, how many other people are sitting on death row? And it's. You that's know, it's just, that's terrifying to think. That's what worries me about capital punishment. Yeah. Um, is because there are people who have been killed <laughs> yeah. that were later to found out to be innocent. Yeah. And they didn't get a chance to try to prove their innocence. And that's what he's trying to do. It's unfortunate the way that our system works, but I'm glad this stay has been granted. I really yeah. hope that this is some resolution for him is able to come out of it and that actual oh, justice gosh, yeah. for Stacy is oh, yeah. found for her yeah. and her family's sake. But yeah, that's terrifying. Terrifying. <laughs> that's that's a good terrifying word. this week in yes. uh, <laughs> news. So one more thing before we dive in, we have to give a shout out to a reviewer this week who mm-hmm. left us a very lovely lovely review. Her name is 
Michelle. She left us a great five-star review, and we just want to shout out those who leave us those nice reviews, and we appreciate it. We love that you have randomly found us and are enjoying it. Um, We will try our best to give shout-outs on reviews whenever we see them and catch them on our iTunes page, and we just wanted to say thank you again. Miss Michelle, you're a rock star. We appreciate you. (laughs) Yes, thank you so much. Um, It's unfortunate iTunes is the only place that you can really leave reviews on podcasts. So if you feel compelled to do that, we'd love to see um, your feedback. And yeah, it's great. We love doing this podcast. So I'm really excited that other people enjoy listening to it. So thank you so much. And I mean, if you don't don't feel like leaving a review on there, which that does help us boost us up the charts mm-hmm. and whatnot. There is always our social medias and our emails. Yes. So just drop us a line in one of those, even if it's not uh, like a good job, buddies, if it's, you know, suggestions or, um, Oh yeah. Send us ideas. case recommendations yeah. because like I have a list of cases in my phone that like I want to do, but sometimes there's just cases that I'm not going to, even though I'm like searching through and I'm trying to find cases that aren't as well known, like, if there's a case that you think is really important, especially if it's a cold case, mm-hmm. you know, let us know and we'll, we'll definitely talk about it on the podcast. So. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for the lovely review, friend. Yes. <laughs> well, uh, on to the stories for today. dun dun, dun. Today, our main case is going to be a case that takes place in Mississippi because I felt bad for forgetting that Mississippi was in Appalachia last week. <laughs> so <laughs> I Whoopsie went doopsie. searching for a Mississippi case and found this one and thought it would be appropriate for this podcast, I guess. Um, also, forgot to mention this in the beginning. We are now going to be posting our sources on the Facebook posts that we do every week when the episode comes out rather than like talking about them in the podcast. Mm -hmm. So if you are interested in reading more about each story that we do or want, no, that's it. Not just interested. Uh, Then (laughs) if you just want to look, (laughs) um, go ahead and check out our Facebook page, give it a like and you'll, you'll see the, the posts and that would be great. Awesome. So today we are in Winona, Mississippi. Winona. It's W-I-N-O-N-A. So Winona, Winona. 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 I don't know. Sure. I'm gonna, yeah. <laughs> I'll interchange it. Winona. Winona, Mississippi. Uh, it's located in Montgomery County, which is one of the counties that is in Appalachia. <laughs> and is known as the Crossroads of Northern Mississippi, which I feel like is a very weird phrase, but okay. So... It has a population of just over 5,000 during the 2010 census, which now I'm like, oh, shit, we have a 2020 census coming up. We're going to have new data. It's crazy. During this case, which took place in 1996, uh, in the 1990 census, there were about 5,700. So the 1980s seemed to be the peak population for this town, and it's Mm -hmm. just been slowly declining since because it's a small town. Um, So very... Uh, similar to many other small Appalachian towns we've talked about. July 16th, 1996, we are in the middle of a heat wave. Bertha Tardy, the owner of Tardy Furniture, had called Sam Jones to come train the two new employees that they had, which were um, 16-year-old Derek Bobo Stewart 
one of the articles I read referred to him as Bobo a lot, and I just can't do it. So I'm going to call him Derek. <laughs> and then 42-year-old Robert Golden were two new employees. Mm-hmm. And Sam Jones had just retired after working at Tardy Furniture for more than 50 years. So he was totally okay with coming into training yeah. as two new guys. While the rest of this town was kind of declining, as many towns in Appalachia did, Tardy Furniture was, like, kicking it, man. Like, they were still doing really good. So, which is really great for a furniture store. Mm -hmm. I mean, now it's harder. I don't see as many furniture stores because you can buy everything online. (laughs) Yeah, well, because you have, like, those big-name retailers and whatnot. He went down to Tardy Furniture. That sounds like a commercial. It does. So, when he opened the door to Tardy Furniture, no employees seemed to be on the store floor. He couldn't see anybody. But as he walked in, so there was, like, a a long aisle that went through the showroom floor. Mm -hmm. And as he walked in, like, a little bit, he could see Bertha Tardy, Mm -hmm. who was 59, um, and the owner of the store. He saw her feet. She was lying on the floor. And there's actually one of the crime scene photos that is available online shows just her feet there. I was just trying to understand where everyone was. They have like some drawings Mm -hmm. of like the layout of the store and then like where each body was found because there are multiple bodies in this case. Um, So that was where Bertha was. And then he heard a gurgling noise and that took him to where the other three victims were laying. So uh, he walked through the store and found Carmen Rigby, who was 45, lying face down on a sofa. Both Bertha and Carmen had been shot once in the head. Robert Golden, one of the new employees he was Mm -hmm. coming to train, who was 42, was lying over the counter and had been shot in the head two times. And then 16-year-old Derek Stewart was lying in a pool of blood, and he was fighting for his life. 16? 16. It was his very first job. Breaks my heart. And, like, there's pictures of all these people, and, like, he's a small-town boy with a baseball cap on, like, such a sweet-looking kid. Sam Jones immediately left the store, which confuses me a little bit. I'm not sure why he just didn't go to the phone and call 911. But he left the store. And ran up the street and asked, like, a neighboring store to call 911. And he all he told them was that there were four people on the ground. So when the, they called 911, the dispatcher assumed because it was a heat wave that maybe everyone had, like, passed out or something. No. And I was like, okay. The first person on the scene was Johnny Hargrove, who was the police chief in Winona. Because he was only about a minute away. So mm-hmm. he drove straight there. And Sam Jones was not there at this point. Like, he was still... somewhere yeah he noticed bertha's body and he didn't have his radio on him so he took his gun out because at that point they weren't sure who did it who was still in the Mm -hmm. store because everyone had been shot and he went back to his car as he walked out with his gun and um to get a hold of the other dispatchers to call an ambulance ambulance a coroner and different people that he knew that they would need he also saw that Derek was fighting for his life so he made sure they got an ambulance so after this uh paramedics did arrive and they took Derek to the hospital on a stretcher. Mm -hmm. He fought for his life for about a week and then passed away. But he was in critical critical condition the whole time, so he was never able to say who the killer was. Mm. So law enforcement did tape off the scene, but they didn't, like, restrict access like they should have. Like, if someone had a badge, they were allowed to go in. Like, this article says that um, the town's animal control officer was allowed in because he had a uniform and a badge. And I'm like, what? No. 
What? You limit access to the area. And the animal control officer has no business being in there. Nosy small town people. I mean. That's what it is. Obviously, but dear gosh. I died when I read that. I was like, uh-huh. oh gosh, I know exactly the kind of town this is now just based on that one statement alone. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> They began interviewing a bunch of witnesses and set up a command post in the store. Mm-hmm. Um, and they took many notes. And they actually, there were two people that drove up from Jackson, Mississippi, mm-hmm. um, that took the most notes that day. During this process, they found two bullets, two bullet fragments, and one live round on the floor near a bookcase. Mm-hmm. This article says that each victim had only been shot in the head once, but then I saw somewhere else that someone else had been shot. The one guy had been shot twice. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I'm not sure. There's actually, like, not a lot of articles on the case itself. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of articles about the guy who was convicted of the case. Okay. Which is unfortunate. There is an article I have that tells me a little bit about, showed a little bit about each victim and, like, mm-hmm. told about their life. So there were footprints at the scene that were in the blood nearby, mm-hmm. and they took, like images and stuff of that so they could have that and it did not match the footprint of sam jones and they also at this time too weren't sure so bertha tardy was actually married to tom tardy who was the original owner of the store he sold the store to bertha in the 80s and then they got married later Mm -hmm. so they were also worried they didn't know if tom was there because he normally was at the store even though he transferred all over to her Mm -hmm. um so they were like is there a fifth body like there were a lot of unknowns in this case because if it's a small town you tend to know like who's going to be around yeah so they cleared sam jones It, it wasn't tom tardy either they look through and there was no money in the register Mm -hmm. but the safe at bertha's desk was actually like unlocked like it wasn't closed all the way and Uh it was unlocked but nothing had been taken out of that her purse was still there like there just was no cash in the drawer and i it doesn't designate whether it like they had emptied the cash drawer the night before and it was still in the safe yeah or or, i mean you know it depends on different practices different places you know only want you to have so much in the drawer it really it looked like someone just came in and shot people and then left like there wasn't a ton of disarray happening so a little bit about the victims so bertha tardy owned the furniture store she was a, a very strong leader in the community um her daughter said that she was also a very religious woman went to church things like that and she was a member of the winona downtown merchant association uh, the montgomery county economic council like she was really a big part of the community so this was a huge loss when she passed away carmen rigby who was the one found on the couch had worked at the store for more than 20 years and she was a mom that had two teenage sons And it was said that she was really kind and always laughing, smiling, just a happy person. Robert Golden, who was the one I believe shot twice, he was a dad. Mm -hmm. And he also had just started working at the store to supplement his income. And he had two kids. And he liked to play pool. Nice. His brother. And then Derek Bobo Stewart. So he was a a baseball player, which Mm -hmm. is the picture is like his baseball player picture that you see online. And um, his coach said that Derek loved life. And then he said, I don't have a son, but if I had a son, I'd want him to be like Derek. And that just broke my heart because I can't imagine, especially like you never imagine your kid going to work on the first day and them not coming home. Yeah. I can't imagine what those parents went through. So that's about the crime itself. A couple months later, They arrested Curtis Flowers as the suspect in this case. He was a local in the town. People had said they had seen him outside the store that morning. Mm -hmm. And they also said that the foot 
print match the type of shoes that he was wearing, which I'm like, how the hell do you remember the type of shoes someone was wearing? Yeah. That's just me. But I don't pay attention to detail. So actually, Flowers had worked at Tardy Furniture. Mm-hmm. And till recently before the crime was committed. Somewhere it says that he had dropped these like expensive batteries off a truck. And so they said that he was going to have to use most of his paycheck to pay that back. Mm-hmm. And so he just stopped going to work as you do. Another place says that he said that that did not happen. Mm-hmm. He was like, no, we never got in an argument over it. Like, I don't know. And he owed um, Bertha like a $30 fee for an advance on his paycheck. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had just started, I mean, he'd been working there for a little bit, but they, basically took all of that and said, okay, this was a revenge plot, and that's why he did it. They got revenge plot from that? Well, and then this, and this doesn't make sense to me either. So there was $400, oh, I, now I, I don't write things in logical order because I don't make sense. There was $400 missing from the cash drawer. I said before there was no cash in the drawer. There was $400 missing, and they said that they found like $235 hidden in his headboard. Yeah. I don't, it's, it's not that I don't think he did it or didn't do it. It's not that. Mm-hmm. It's just a lot of the evidence that they're saying was used for this case. To me, if I was on the jury, Seems I don't know. Really circumstantial. Yeah. I don't know if I would like yeah. be gung ho about yeah. convicting him, but they did find gunpowder residue, gunpowder residue on his hand. Okay. And there was a gun stolen from his uncle's car that morning. That was the same gun used in the crime. Oh. So that could have been. But again, Mm -hmm. it's still, you know, I mean, the gunpowder thing. Wait, so you said, uh, did did you say like a month after is when they arrested him? Which doesn't make sense for the gunpowder residue. Yeah, that's what I was Like, did they come in and pull him in and question him like the day of? I don't have that. Oh. That is confusing. There's a lot that I'm a little bit confused about this case. Nikki had a good question about the gunpowder residue and the fact that it said a couple months later, but I'm looking back through some of my sources and like, there's not a clear designation that they initially suspected him Mm -hmm. and took him in because my thing too is like, if he had gunpowder residue, one article said he moved to Texas for two months. So if you're suspect, wouldn't you, unless, I mean, maybe they didn't have a good reason to hold him, but I feel like gunpowder residue Maybe. And the gun stolen would be, you might be able to hold somebody. Yeah. I don't know. So, fun fact, this guy, Curtis Flowers, has been Mm -hmm. through six trials in relation to this case. Shut up. Mm -hmm. Six? And double jeopardy has never applied. Let's, let's talk through this. Okay. Because this is, this is a little confusing. Okay. And convoluted. (laughs) But a lot of it has to do with race, which is why I'm talking about it. Whether or not he did it, this is... Evident in the case that we talked about earlier. Yeah. This is an issue of only having, especially if your population does not meet the way your jury splits. I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. you can't have a completely like representative jury at all times, but using all of your, when you go in to help with jury selection, you have Mm -hmm. so many strikes you're allotted to like say, okay, this person, (laughs) to say, like, this person can't because they're biased. They know the the person, things like that. You have so many strikes that you can use. And the state was using all of their strikes against people that were African-American, except for, like, one strike out of all these cases. So the first trial, he originally was only tried for one of the murders. Mm -hmm. And it was Bertha's. Basically, it was overturned because they thought that the evidence presented by the state didn't really prove beyond a reasonable doubt that 
it was that they didn't feel like the evidence was going to prove beyond a reasonable doubt. They didn't. So they overturned the conviction because they appealed it because they thought that the prosecutor asked questions basically that were like leaning. Yeah. Mm. So they had a retrial. They changed the venue because they were worried that they were having issues getting a fair jury Mm -hmm. because small towns, you hear about everything and it's hard to remain unbiased Mm -hmm. in these cases even though they're like don't listen to the news and you're like if you're a true crime i always imagine like what if i got selected for jury duty because i'm like i'm gonna read up on it before i even (laughs) get the letter of course i'm gonna read on it i mean duh it's hard for me not to so they moved the trial to harrison county so we're in montgomery county they've moved it to harrison county um in mississippi which i got confused about because Mm -hmm. we have a harrison county in west virginia he was convicted and sentenced to death But then the verdict was overturned because the court had allowed evidence because, again, he wasn't being tried for all the murders. Mm -hmm. So they had allowed evidence to come in for the other murders and can't do that. Gotcha. Um, And then some other errors were made that were like Mm -hmm. smaller ones. So then we have a third trial. (laughs) Jesus. And this was for four counts of murder. Mm -hmm. And this was in 2004. And he was convicted for each murder and he was sentenced to death. But then the verdict was overturned on appeal because the state was like, during the jury selection, it was racially motivated that they got rid of a lot of these people. So the state used its first seven strikes on African-American potential African-American jurors. Mm -hmm. And then they, so the Batson challenge Mm -hmm. is this case that happened in Kentucky where they were like, you can't get rid of jurors because of race. Okay. So they were Batson challenged. I don't know if that's how you phrase it. And they were like, no, 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 it's not because of race. And they were like, okay, whatever. They used the rest of their five strikes on African-American jurors. Jesus, God. And then it used its three alternate juror strikes to exclude African-Americans. What the hell? Yeah. So that jury only had two African-American people and ten white people. But the population there is 45% African-American. Oh, okay. So, yeah, you couldn't find a couple more? Yeah. (laughs) Makes sense why all this was happening. Yeah. So then we're on to the fourth trial. (laughs) Jeez Louise. <laughs> so the fourth trial, they did not seek the death penalty. I think oh, people were... yay. Yeah. They were kind of getting tired of all this shit. Again, the state used its challenges on the jury selection, and the resulting jury, again, only had two African-American people on it. I mean, what is... Uh, but... Out, what is the state thinking? Yeah. Like, oh, we couldn't get away with it once. Let's try it again. Well, I mean, this <laughs> trial ended in a mistrial. On. There was a mistrial this time. So this wasn't appealed. This was a mistrial and it was seven to five in favor of conviction. So then we're on to the fifth trial, (laughs) which was also a mistrial in 2008. And it had a jury of nine white people and three black people. But there was only one juror opposed to convicting, which is how it ended in a mistrial. So then we have our sixth trial. (laughs) Six times the charm for the state of Mississippi. I don't know. This is in 2010. Wait, when did this originally happen? 1996. This is ridiculous. Yes, so much. And this jury, wait for it, was 11 white jurors and one black juror. Please tell them my face. I look like what's-his-face from the office, the one dude that's always like, hmm. Jim? Yeah, no. Dwight? Stanley! Yes. Stanley! (laughs) My face is Stanley from the office. Yeah. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's seriously, when I was reading this, I mean, it's crazy. So 2010, 
this is the jury. After 30 minutes, they found him guilty of four Mm -hmm. counts of capital murder, and they decided to give him the death sentence. So this guy has been off, on, off, on, like all crazy. So then, and this is why I thought this was important again. In 2016, Mm -hmm. it was appealed. My head's going to explode. I'm sorry, but I just like, I I found this case and I was like, oh yeah, let's do it. And then I got more and more into it. This is so jacked up. It is. It is. It was appealed. Uh So in 2018. Last year. For those of you who (laughs) They appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court um, because they were basically saying like, there's a bunch of racism. And uh, all yeah, these trials going obviously. on. Obviously. And so they appealed to the court. Basically, they found that the court had racially discriminated against Flowers in the jury selection. That is all of those six cases. So, in the total six trials, the state had used 41 of its 42 challenges to exclude African-American jurors. Mm, yeesh. So they're still deciding whether or not to do a seventh trial. Wait, so... Because his conviction was overturned because racism was Okay, used. so he's free currently. No. No? He's, he's still in jail. He's petitioned to be why? released on bail or have the case just dismissed. Wait, so if it was overturned, why is he still sitting in jail? I don't know. Because our justice system. Oh, my gosh. Maybe they feel like he's going to leave. I don't know. I mean, if I was him, I would. I'd be like, I'm going to Mexico. Bye, bitches. Yeah. I mean, holy cow. Yeah. How... How can the state of Mississippi get away with that? With the, I mean, okay, if he is guilty, so be it. But due process, oh my gosh. I, like, legit, that's, okay, 96 to literally 2019, so that's what, uh, I can't do middle math. 1996 to 2019? Yeah. 23. 23 years. That is not due process. You are entitled to a swift trial. Swift and speedy trial. I mean... My, here's my thing. Come on. It. If you didn't get it the first six times, then just... You're not going to get it. Well, my thing Maybe is... Maybe this isn't you, your guy. Well, if oh you my really God. believe that it's him, how about have a non-biased jury? Because they... they and how about make sure your damn evidence stacks up to where you're going to convict them? Yeah. And then, if not... And I think the issue... there It hasn't been double jeopardy yet mm-hmm. at all. But, no, because there's been no returns. Right. They're, like, trying to figure out a way to at least get him, and they think it's him. I think the gun being stolen is interesting evidence, but a lot of the other evidence seems circumstantial to me. But I think the important thing to say about this is, A, there has not been justice served for these four people no. that were murdered in 23 years ago. No. And also, even if he is guilty of it, we have such a screwed-up <clears throat> justice system to where this guy... And we have wasted so much money for six different trials to try to convict him. But we can't, they're not doing it right because they're being racist people. Racist people, I don't know what I'm trying, I'm trying to not say mean things. But like, it's, this is a problem. Yeah. And evident in Rodney Reed, you know, like, and, and the fact that there are people in power who are able to use racism and their power to let other people take the fall for them. And Sheesh. that's not right. And I feel like we should be talking about it more. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things we should be talking about more in our current state of the government. But this case just kind of made me mad when I was reading about yeah. it. And then, like, all that going on. And um, Well, it hasn't reached will... double jeopardy status because he's not actually been acquitted at trial yet. Like, it's either been a mistrial or he's been 
you know, a, it's been a shoddy conviction. Yeah. Also, I will say that the Innocence Project of New Orleans has been working with him. So if that says anything, I feel like the Innocence Project has to really believe in your case to really help take you on, don't they? Oh, yeah. So Normally, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're not going to just take on anything. Right. That's that's the case. That's the um, Tardy Furniture Murders, but also the murders of Bertha Tardy, Carmen Rigby, Robert Golden, and Derek Bobo Stewart. And I just hope that eventually we get justice for them. And there's not a lot about the case itself. Mm-mm. So I thought that it was important to tell. Boy, my brain hurts now. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Holy cow. I can't imagine what you were like trying to research. That. I had like seven articles <laughs> to send Holy you. Cow. It's crazy. Because I was like cross-referencing everything. Mm-hmm. But... today I was having a little trouble trying to find like a cold case that really stood out to me or anything and I was just like wandering around on the interwebs of course um and I came across a really good website Middle Tennessee Mysteries if you've never looked at it really good sounds fun but I found an article on there and it's about Tennessee's unidentified juvenile victims like kids for the most part I think there is like one that's like a 20 year old on here but everybody else is juveniles so a little background Tennessee has more than 500 reported missing persons, according to NAMIS and the National... The thing that we don't know how to pronounce. Yeah, (laughs) NAMIS. The National Missing Persons Database. And Tennessee became just uh, one of three states in the U.S. in May of 2017, requiring law enforcement to enter all missing and unidentified persons into the National Database. So there's only three states that do that. That's bull. Yeah. And all the information, including DNA, fingerprints, dental records, and other distinguishing features of a person have to be entered into it. Of the 508 people that have been entered into the database for Tennessee, only seven are unidentified juveniles whose remains have been found within the state of Tennessee. They range anywhere from Memphis all the way up to Knoxville. And the oldest story that I'm, the first one I'm going to tell you about is from 1975. So, join me on this wild ride because holy crap. First, we have Jane Doe, 1975, and on Valentine's Day in 1975, two hunters stumbled across the skeletal remains of a black female and a puppy in the woods off Joe Brown Road in Maury County, Tennessee. A forensic examination found that the victim had died six to nine months prior to her discovery, And it was likely in the late summer or fall of 1974. Cause of death was not determined, um, but she may have been hit by an automobile or had been in a wreck, they said. Because she had fresh fractures to her pelvic bone and both sides of her ribs. So that's why they think it was either a car wreck or she was hit by a vehicle. But they they did find that she did have previous injuries to her ribs. She had no cavities, restorations, or signs of decay to her teeth, but she had an extra tooth on the upper right side of her jaw. Um, They determined her age was somewhere from 15 to 25 years old. They estimated that she was anywhere from 5 foot 3 inches to 5 foot 5 inches tall um, and weighed anywhere from 127 to 137 pounds. In addition to the puppy they found with her, they found a red, like, shell blouse, 
flowered blue slacks, a bra, underwear, and black Italian-made wedge shoes found amongst her remains. Closest that she came to being identified was back in 2012. A facial reconstruction was released and a man contacted investigators to say the victim resembled a childhood friend of his. However, the the callback number that that man provided was invalid. So they never got to get a hold of him. And for Jane Doe 1975, they're asking anyone with information to call the Maury County Sheriff's Office at 931-388-5151 or University of Tennessee, because that's where they're holding her remains, at 865-974-4408. So that was our Jane Doe 1975. Now we have Jane Doe 1976. And on March 24th, 1976, a fisherman found the body of a teenage girl wearing only a white bra and jeans in the Harpeth River in Davidson County, Tennessee. And she had been dead for less than 24 hours. Mm. When she was found, she was topless, was wearing a choker-style necklace with beads and a white dove. She also had a picture of a young boy in her back pocket with the name Little Charlie and a phone number written on it. When investigators called the number, they found Charles Little Charlie Moore on the other end of the line. Little Charlie, who lived in East Nashville, said he and his brother-in-law had picked up the girl while she was hitchhiking. They called her Sherry or Cheryl. Little Charlie said she was traveling with another teenage girl who was described as thin with sandy blonde hair and wire-rimmed glasses. The men picked up the teens nine days before she was found as... They walked along Interstate 24 near Nashville. They were on their way to Florida from a rehab facility in Minneapolis, St. Paul area. And Sherry slash Cheryl had been treated for alcoholism and the other teen said she had tried to complete suicide. Little Charlie said he left the teens about 85 miles northeast of Nashville, which would place them near Winchester, and saw them get into another vehicle that had continued toward Chattanooga, Tennessee. An autopsy determined she had drowned. She had bruising on her chest and legs. Mm. She had black hair, brown eyes, and an olive complexion. She was anywhere between 14 and 17 years old, mm. stood five foot two, and weighed 120 to 130 pounds. Her race was indeterminate, but she has been described as white, Hispanic, or Native American. For any distinguishing features, she did have two surgical scars on her abdomen and old scars on both arms that may have been cigarette burns. Mm -hmm. She had a mole near her left eye and a large build. Anyone with information on Jane Doe 1976 case is asked to call the Metro Nashville Police Department Cold Case Unit, and their number is 615-880-2928. Next we have a little bit different take on this. Jane Pegram Doe, 1981. So on October 21st, 1981, the partial remains of a teenage girl were found by two hunters near the Cheatham County landfill near Pegram. So that's why they get the okay. Joe or Jane Pegram Doe. Investigators only found some hair along with her skull, pelvis, and a few other bones which include femurs that had been sawed off just above the knee. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, my gosh. This one's pretty gross. Dr. William Bass from the University of Tennessee Forensic Anthropology Center was called in to help. Bass estimated the remains were from a 15- to 20-year-old white girl with brown hair, 
She had died somewhere between January and August of 1981, but insect activity suggested it could have been between May and July. So they right. had that broader range, and then they, they think probably somewhere between May and July is when she was actually killed. Because of the limited evidence, her height and weight are undetermined because... You know, but she did receive dental care in the past and had at least two cavities that had been filled. According to the National Crime Information Center, she is believed to have been a hitchhiker, likely because no missing, missing persons reports matching her description were located in the state itself. And anyone with information is asked to call the Tennessee Bureau of Investigation, 1-800-TBI-FIND, or Forensic Anthropology Center at University of Knoxville, at 865-974-4408. That one is a rough one. And that's one that I really worry won't get solved. Just because hers Gosh. is really, really limited. Yeah. Um, so next, <laughs> which we're almost, we're like halfway through these. Um, <laughs> John Doe, 1983. So on August 26, 1983, a farmer found the body of an unidentified black male off of Sycamore Lane in the Pleasant Hill community near Crossville, Tennessee. Investigators believe he had been dead for about a week and was partially decomposed. His cause of death is probable stabbing. He had several fillings and a small gap between his front teeth. He's believed to be anywhere from 17 to 25 years old with black hair and brown eyes. His estimated height is five foot eight and weight is one sixty to one seventy pounds. He was wearing jeans and a light blue t-shirt with the inscription, I'm hers, but she deserves the best. In his pockets, investigators found American Airlines junior pilot flight wings and a pack of cool filter cigarettes. Limited on info too. So next up we have Jane Doe 2003. So on March 25th, 2003, the partial skeletal remains of a black female in her late teens to early 20s were found near Knoxville Airport in Alcoa, Tennessee. A team of surveyors were working a road project, and they found a human skull in a creek bed. Investigators called the UT Forensic Anthropology Center to help in a search that recovered 39 bones, including her skull, in an 850-foot area along the creek. So she was, like, scattered. Wow. Yeah. The bones were so spread out because of water flow. That was according to Alcoa Detective Chris Sanders. Along with her bones, they found the spot where her body had been dumped. They couldn't determine the cause of death, though. Sanders estimated the teen had been dead at least eight months and up to four years. Holy crap. Which is a big time frame. Yeah. Clothing found near the remains was traced to two stores in Chicago and Oaklawn, Illinois, though. Her teeth showed two unique characteristics. Two of her upper front teeth were missing prior to her death. For several years, and her remaining upper front teeth showed extreme flaring to the point where they were sticking almost straight out. Oh, so, wow. she had, like, I guess, really crooked teeth, <laughs> basically. Her mandible, though, was never recovered. And she stood from anywhere from 5 foot 4 to 5 foot 10. Her weight, hair color, and eye color are undetermined, but large amounts of black synthetic braids were found near her skull. Anyone with information on her, they're asked to call the Alcoa Police Department at 865-981-4111. All right, last one. This is, I mean, one is one too many, but right. this is quite a few. Last, we have John Doe, 2003. On May 22nd, 2003, the body of an unidentified Hispanic male in his late teens to early 20s was found under a bridge in Nankana Creek 
in Memphis. An autopsy found he had been dead for several days. It also found he likely experienced poor nutrition or chronic sickness during his childhood. So this suggests he might have been a migrant worker or immigrant to the U.S. He was wearing a black short-sleeved starter branded shirt with the letter Z on the front, brown corduroy pants, and white Nike flight shoes with blue accents. He's estimated height of 5'1 to 5'5". Three and weight 135 pounds. His hair was black and short. Other distinguishing characteristics he had were a broken nose and right big toe, both of which had healed already, and two homemade, like, stippled tattoos. One of the tattoos said UL and was on his left hand between his thumb and his pointer finger, and one on his forearm, which was illegible. So anybody with information on John Doe... 2003 is asked to call the Memphis Police Department Missing Persons Unit at 901-636-4479. So yeah, those are the unidentified juveniles of Tennessee. It's kind of crazy that they have that many unidentified juveniles. And granted, they did say that, you know, some of these ages could be anywhere from late teens to early 20s, but they, I guess, are assuming they're closer to being late teens. Right. Just due to the defining characteristics. So, yeah, that's our cold cases. I know it was a lot and an overload, but holy cow, I could not believe that. So, yeah. well, what is your podcast recommendation on an up note? On that note, my podcast rec this week is Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. Ooh. Um, what it basically is, Dax Shepard, who is. Kristen Bell's uh, husband, and he is an actor in his own right, he sits down and he interviews various celebrities just about life in general and stuff. And it's actually pretty good. Like, he doesn't say talk about usually, like, the same kind of bullcrap that celebrities get asked and whatnot. Mm-hmm. He'll ask, like, really interesting, different, quirky questions. And it's just, there's some really good episodes on there. I really love the one he did with Chelsea Handler. Mm-hmm. And then the episode where he actually interviewed his wife, Kristen Bell, yeah. is really, really good, too. So, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But what is yours, ma'am? Mine this week is the All Things Internet podcast, which mm-hmm. is hosted by Rachel Ballinger and Gwen Ballinger. So if you know Miranda Sings, mm-hmm. this is her mom and her sister. Rachel has her own YouTube channel and, and does a bunch of things, too. But their mom... I'm just obsessed with their mom. But basically, <laughs> this is just a podcast where they talk about things that happen on the internet. And as she, you know, gives a disclaimer in the beginning, they don't research anything or verify anything. They just, if they find it, they talk about it. They play some games. It's a really silly podcast, but it's like a podcast that I don't have to necessarily listen to intently to understand what's going on. Yeah. So that's really nice. But that's my recommendation for this week. Okay. Um, anything else we need to cover before we I don't think so. Go? Okay. Just remember, look at our comment on our stuff, our social media, check out our social medias, all that fun stuff. Shoot us an email if you have a suggestion for a case or a crime you'd like to see covered. We are open to it and we appreciate it. This yeah. the feedback we get and yeah, that's the only thing I can think of off the top of my head. <laughs> all right. Well on that note. Thanks, y'all, for listening. We appreciate you. Be kind. Bye, Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to the Appalachian Crime Trail podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate us on iTunes and subscribe and download new episodes. You can find us anywhere podcasts are found. 
Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Our email is AppalachianCrimeTrail at gmail.com. Thank you.